the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Greetings. Thanks for coming along the 28th of February. This is the uh, the final day of the month, isn't it? Well, not really, right? It's uh, the leap year, right? Tomorrow, the 29th, we get that extra day added in for February. All those fans of February, wherever you may be. Um... Do you remember doing this? Maybe this is, again, this falls under the category of which Kath will roll her eyes. She's not here again. Uh, still recovering from her uh, back maladies. But I, I've been thinking about this. Uh, Sunday morning, um, my car was uh, uh, not available. <laughs> and so my wife said, let me drive. I'll, I'll drive, which is fine. I, mean, I have no. But, you know, generally I drive. But I really like it. Lately, I really, really like it whenever my wife is driving because there's, a, of course, you know this, a huge difference between being a passenger in someone's car as opposed to driving. When you're driving, you're focused on the task at hand, which is to arrive at your destination safely and securely in a, um, in a, <laughs> a reasonable time, right? So you're, so you're thinking about the road and the other cars around you. But as a passenger... Holy smokes. I'm looking at the landscape, the houses, the hills, the trees, all those things, and taking it all in. Not on my phone. Taking it all in. I love it. I mean, I think the older you get, maybe it's true that, you know, the less inclined you feel like, eh, I don't necessarily need to drive. Remember my dad, my dad, they took my dad's license away, which was to him kind of like it crushed him. And I can understand that because, of course, then there goes your freedom. You can't just get up and go where you want to go. What a great gift it is to have a a vehicle and go where you want to go, when you want to go, to see what you want to see, right? I get that. But that crushing, there was also a measure, like I'm talking about, a measure of freedom in his life, that he would be the passenger and go, oh, I I didn't, I've never seen that before, right? While you're on the parkway or while you're driving somewhere to the, to the store, because you're focused on the task at hand. So I've been thinking about this and when we were kids, and I guess this is not a thing. This is probably, if if I was going to pinpoint the demise of this, I would probably say the 1970s or so, because I don't hear people talk about this. And to be honest, to even raise the idea of it seems a little crazy. We used to go on Sunday afternoon drives. We'd all get in the car and gas up, my dad, and we would, the whole family would just drive. (laughs) I mean, it it sounds quaint, maybe a little bit crazy in some way. But there we would all be, trying with various attempts to enjoy each other's company, all nine of us, in that station wagon. <laughs> what were they thinking? 
And there we would drive to an aimless destination. Up the hill, down the bend, around the corner, and just drive for an hour or two or more, I think, which is what we did. People don't do this anymore, right? This is just, I mean, why would you? Right? Uh, the American landscape has certainly changed, right? Um, if you go out to like the mall or even like the, the shopping areas, not even the mall areas, but I, I would call them anywhere USA, right? That, that's whether in Aberdeen, South Dakota or here in Western Pennsylvania, I think every shopping area looks like any place, uh, any other shopping area, anywhere USA, but to go out into the countryside, isn't it nice to take a road trip and just to wander? I mean, you've got a destination in the road trip. I mean, my kid just graduated from Penn State. I love the drive out to Happy Valley. It was a wonderful drive, beautiful drive. You weren't on the super highways for the most part, right? You were just, a lot of times, two-lane roads. Really, really a beautiful drive uh, through eastern Pennsylvania. So the idea of the Sunday drive leisurely, relaxed, just to see God's creation, right? To see what we could see. In thinking about this, I wonder with the advent of, you know, self-driving cars, like, you know, they're here to some degree, but they're certainly going to be here within the next decade. There's no doubt about that. So with the advent of that, will that bring back the Sunday drive? They go, let's just... Get in the car and we'll program it, right? We're going to program it to some place and we'll all just get in and, and travel. Now, the problem is, right, like a lot of us probably will miss the Sunday drive, what's before us, because we'll be on our phones while the automatic car is driving, right? We'll mess it up somehow. But there's a beauty, a simplicity, a singular pleasure of seeing the road before you. What, what was the... Uh, See the USA in a Chevrolet. Remember that? I mean, right? We used to do that. Now we see the USA in the world through our, our phones. And so, of course, we've lost something. Anyway, here's hoping on this Wednesday afternoon, the next to the last day of February, that maybe this Sunday after church, everybody piles into the car for a Sunday drive just to see the glory of God's creation. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Kath, I said, continued prayers for Kath and her healing, her bad back. Ay, ay, ay. So maybe she'll be back uh, maybe next week. We'll see. But um, we, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Joel, the book of Joel 2, 12, and 13. Look that up if you've got a chance, all right? This is Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home here on 101.5 Word FM, WORD. We are well underway with the Lenten season, and at the beginning of Lent, I think a lot of us were like, I'm going to enter into a Lenten discipline of denying myself something. Now, here we are, like two, two weeks in or so, and I just wonder for yourself, how are things going? How are you with your denial of self? Pastor Josh Brown is back with us. Pastor Brown is a regular guest on our show here on The Ride Home. He is the um, the senior pastor at Belfield Presbyterian Church in the Oakland neighborhood here in the city of Pittsburgh. And Josh, welcome back. 
John, thanks for having me. I always appreciate it. My pleasure, Josh. Uh, thanks for being with us as well. So um, here we are. Uh, this is week two, isn't it, of the Lent? Uh, two weeks since Ash Wednesday. We are, yeah. We're we're getting our ways into it, as you said, and hitting that point where I think a lot of people find themselves a couple of weeks after New Year's when they make resolutions <laughs> of, you know, wondering if it was realistic, wondering yep. if they, you know, aimed a little too high, or maybe they've even already forgotten what they resolved to do in the first place. Yep. Uh, for some people, not for every, but th- that happens when we get a couple of weeks into something and, yeah. and try to evaluate if we're how we're doing. Right. So can you share from your perspective, have you chosen, I mean, it's, it's fair to say uh, for a lot of people, especially um, those of us who are Presbyterians, Lent and especially the denial of self, uh, it's certainly ancient, biblical, but not necessarily something that we've been part of in the last decades. Yes? You're right. I think broadly speaking, Christians engage in this in different ways, in large part due to their tradition that they're a part of. So there are some who take this very seriously, uh, some traditions that will ask people to very intentionally set aside something for Lent and be very rigorous about that and very disciplined about that. And it's a very it's a very weighty matter. There are other Christian traditions who maybe have never even tried something like that, didn't even know that it was a thing. It's certainly not a part of their regular rhythms and routines, and they think it seems a little superstitious maybe or hmm. a little kind of legalistic. And, and there are people then who are kind of all over the spectrum on it. So I do think it, it is something that's important to understand why you are doing what you are doing, if in fact you are doing something, uh, as it is with really most areas of our discipleship. It's not simply the actions themselves, but what's going on with that, what is motivating it, what's leading us as we engage or don't engage with a particular discipline. Very good. So then when you read your Bible, is there some impetus, uh, a a little window into this uh, whole thing about denying ourselves? There, there is, yeah. A verse that is often used during the Lenten season and one that I've found myself just reflecting on over the years comes from the prophet Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, there's a verse, and, and even just given the lar- give the larger context here first, Joel is a prophet who is writing about the coming day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was a way of speaking of this time when God would come in judgment in some capacity. And so the first chapter and the first little verse, Part of chapter 2 in Joel is this vision of God's coming judgment in some capacity. And then then Joel says this in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And I find that passage a fascinating one for a lot of reasons. Uh, In in there, the Lord is the one who says, return to me. Uh, He said, I want you to return to me with all your heart. And he says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So the the implication is those things aren't wrong. They're not uh, superstitious. They're not inherently like a legalistic kind of a thing. Uh, God, God says, do those things as you return to me. But the next part, I think, is the really, uh, the really crucial part of the whole thing. That's where the Lord says, rend your hearts and not your garments. What is that? And that I, I think that's picking up on a criticism that you find in, in some of the prophetical writings elsewhere. Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 29, the Lord there says, hey, these people, they draw near to me with their lips and they honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Hmm. And Jesus quoted that verse. So Jesus diagnoses the same problem. That, that's a kind of performative 
outward righteousness where you say the right things, you act in the right ways, but your heart is very, very far from the Lord. You're doing those for all kinds of other reasons. And the fact that Isaiah diagnoses that, Jesus affirms that, that yes, that is a condition of the human heart. Uh, the, Joel then, I think, shows us kind of the different picture, what it should look like, where the Lord says, rend your heart, not your garments. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, even in some modern Near Eastern and Middle Eastern cultures, if you are in a sign of a state of mourning or grieving, uh, you will tear a part of your clothing. It's a way for people to see that you are you're, you're demonstrating some kind of repentance. And it can be just that. It can be just a visible demonstration. So God there is saying, look, don't just don't just tear your sweatshirt. That's not what I'm interested in here. But there's got to be something going on in the heart. There has to be a deep recognition in your heart of your need for me. Mm. That's good. Uh, that's a beautiful little rend your heart. I mean, that's very beautiful. It, it is. It is. And it's a portrait of... It's a portrait of repentance, uh, which is uh, repentance is simply just a turning away from our sin and turning to the Lord. It's a portrait of acknowledging that we need God uh, to provide his mercy, his grace. Right after that, we all those things are affirmed and celebrated. Right after that, it says, if you return to the Lord, he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And those are the things that we can experience in and through Jesus Christ. And it starts with the recognition of our need for those things. Hmm. Yeah, and it's not a one-off. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this essentially to get that. I mean, I, I, of course, I do want and need to draw closer. The reward is one thing, but the action is the key. It really is. And, and when you said it's not a one-off thing, that, that's important, too. It's not, you don't just, you know, raise your hand one time at some, uh, you know, some conference or something like that. That's all you ever have to do again. It's it's really, there, there's a daily dying to sin and rising to new life in Christ. And Lent then can be a season where that's something that we do look at a little bit more intentionally than we do some other times. Uh, but it's never simply about the outward action. So if we, we all know the kind of stereotypical ones. If somebody chooses to give up chocolate or something like sure. that for Lent, fine. Um, but if you're doing that just because you want to show yourself that you've got some self-discipline, that's not really the point. If you want to simply be able to tell your friends that, that's not really the point. Right. Uh, it's a way, if you're doing that, however, to say, hey, this thing, whatever it is, this thing is something that was uh, was sucking away too much of my heart, too much of my adoration, my attention. Uh, and I want to I want to realign those things and refocus them on the Lord. And if that's the reason that you're doing it, if it's a reddening of the heart in order to draw near again to the Lord, then that's a good thing. Yeah. And that's the key, right? I mean, I, I know myself within these past two weeks, what I've given up. And when I do have that urge to engage, I go, wait, 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 here, Lord, be with me. And so it does draw you closer in the midst of your temptation. That's the key. Yeah, it really is, and it certainly can do that, and, and that's that's the reason to engage in something like that. So it, for those people who just kind of brush this off as maybe like, well, that feels very legalistic, feels very superstitious, something like that, I, I would invite you to say, hey, try it, but simply not not just for the sake of any kind of performative outward sure. thing. Say, what, what would it look like for you to maybe train your heart a little bit to focus more on the Lord in some of those times. And uh, for those people who do participate in some Lenten traditions, but only think about it at that outward surface level, I'd invite you to say, what's going on at that deeper level of the heart? Is this something where you are turning your heart once again to the Lord? 
because that's what this is supposed to be about. That's really good. Josh, is this a fair assessment? Um, Often I feel as though myself that I don't think uh, and meditate and then act on the necessity of the spiritual disciplines in our lives, right? The need to draw closer. I, I nod my head at it, but the the action itself is perhaps missing. I, I indict myself here, but the, you know, but all of us together as believers. It, it is. You're right, and the idea of spiritual disciplines themselves can even that can sound a little overwhelming or daunting or or unfamiliar to some people. And those uh, need not be anything overly dramatic. I mean, no. they can be as simple as committing to some daily time reading scripture yes. and praying, or just giving thanks to the Lord for the good things that are happening. Yeah. It's, it's other things too, like corporate worship and being a part of fellowshipping with others and service. There's a lot that goes into that, but they are the things that should just be the regular little part of life. And when we don't engage in those things, and then we find ourselves feeling uh, far from God or like we're something's kind of a missing, there's a correlation there. Um, You know, it's it's kind of like if at the end of the day you're thinking, man, why am I so hungry? And then you think, well, it's because I skipped lunch. Uh, There's a reason. So if it's a, I I don't know that I've been really feeling the Lord close to me on that, one of the things is to ask is, well, have you been have you been making some time for the Lord and for that relationship? That's really good. Pastor Josh Brown is with us. Uh, he read uh, earlier from Joel 2, uh, 12 and 13, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Josh, uh, always good. Um, you shine some light on things that um, I think about in passing, but, uh, but your presence here allows us to go a little deeper. So thank you for that. Before you, before you leave us, though, uh, let's talk for a second about Belfield, Belfield Presbyterian, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You're right in the heart of the Oakland neighborhood, directly across from the, um, people would know this, the towers at the University of Pittsburgh or the, the Pitt Bookstore, I guess. We are. We're right in the midst of all that, near to the hospitals and the SciTech vocational high schools right across the street from us. So it's a really interesting area. There's a lot going on. We have people who come come in from all over the city, though. Yeah. So our congregation has got folks of all ages and coming from all areas, and it, it, we see ourselves as having a, an opportunity to reach out to this very unique community that is around us. Yeah. And we have uh, three services each Sunday, one at 8.30 and one at 11 in the morning, one at 5 in the evening. Our website is belfield.org. You can find out more on there. But uh, anybody's always welcome to join us and and be a part of uh, what we're trying to do alongside the Lord here in Oakland. Excellent. I mean, to to think about, you know, oh, the church is is dying. Young people are not there. But uh, to know that Belfield's engaged, especially with a, a, a college community, and, you know, there's old heads and young heads, that's a good mix. It is. I like it. And it makes it fun. Very nice. Pastor, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks, John. I'll talk to you again soon. You as well. Thank you. Pastor Josh Brown, Belfield Presbyterian Church. It's right, as I said, in the heart of Oakland, right across from the uh, University of Pittsburgh Towers and uh, the bookstore on Fifth Avenue as you're headed um, inbound. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Come back. We're just getting underway. It's the Wednesday edition of The Ride Home. Stay with us. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on Word FM. Way back in high school, I had a good friend who was committed to learning Esperanto. 
Now, you may, you may have some passing knowledge of Esperanto, right? The universal language, um, an artificial language that was, was invented, essentially, by a Polish ophthalmologist way back in, like, 1890s with the full aim to unite humanity. So my friend, you know, not a lot of people uh, were speaking Esperanto, although it it has ebbed and flowed since its original incarnation. Um, But he was part of this group, and this was well before online. And I'm sure there are Esperanto communities online as well. Uh, Of course, the idea of this universal language dates back, I mean, look at the, the Tower of Babel, right, where we did speak one language, and then God broke it all up. Um. Esperanto, a Polish ophthalmologist, uh, he was raised in an ethnic area of Russia, and it was controlled by Poland, but he was acutely aware, this ophthalmologist was, Dr. L. L. Zemahoff, aware of the problems caused by a lack of linguistic understanding between the Poles and the Russians and the barriers that it caused. So in 1887, with the aid of his wife, he published his first Esperanto book, introducing his language to the world. Now, the ophthalmologist, Dr. Zimmerhoff, dreamed that Esperanto would become the world's go-to international auxiliary language. If everybody learned, well, then everyone could speak to everybody else. Now, of course, we have Google Translate, so before you go on an international trip, people bone up on that and, and use that in their travels. But Esperanto? Do you know that there's any number of books and movies that are exclusively engaged in Esperanto language? Um, for a while, it feels it felt as though Esperanto was going to take off. Um, clubs dedicated to learning, teaching the language, multiplied around the world. Some areas saw very high concentration of learners. In some parts of Europe, one in eight people were reported to have known Esperanto. Other estimates put those numbers lower. Um, global conventions for Esperantists began in 1905 and proved successful. And on and on it went. Of course, um, war put a damper on things, World War One, World War II, the Cold War further, uh, the Universal Esperanto Association, uh, they paused in, because they thought the, they were making things worse. I mean, but, but that's where we are right now, right? Wouldn't it be, is it good? Lex, um, give me your take. Do you, have you uh, ever engaged in Esperanto-ish sort of, you know, a mindset to think, well, I'd like to learn this. I know somebody who does this. No, I haven't. No. Did you ever hear of it? No, I've never heard Esperanto. of it. Esperanto. No, I've never heard of really? this before. I mean, it's the language that dreamers have dreamed of world peace. And I'm telling you, it was a big deal. I remember it was... Despite my one friend, when you if you looked up Esperanto on the web, you would see it had a worldwide effect with the idea of us united as a species under the umbrella of God's people. Um, the Pole was a person of faith, the inventor of this language. So um, a curious thing, the, the language of the world, and now I think probably uh, for whatever forces that go on in this world, largely forgotten, but Esperanto, a thing. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Come back. Um, we're just getting underway here. It's the Wednesday edition for Pittsburgh's Christian Talks. Stay with us. I remember way back, uh, I was in fourth or fifth grade. I was taught by, by uh, nuns. 
N-U-N-S, not the N-O-N-E-S. And, and somebody in our class, which was a, an odd thing. I remember, the, it's kind of funny, the things, the shards of memory that you remember. Someone said to, to Sister Aunt Teresa, I'm not feeling right. He, he yelled it out, which was unusual again, because you would never yell at a nun. And, and Sister Aunt Teresa yelled back, I don't care how you feel. Let's get on with it which was kind of a wake-up call, right? Let's just get on with it. And I think of a lot of generations, you know, World War II and backwards, that was kind of the rallying call of what it was to be an adult. I don't care how you feel. Let's just get on with it. Ann Kennedy's back with us. She's a regular guest of ours. She's a wonderful writer, author of Nailed It, 365 sarcastic devotionals for angry and worn out people. She also blogs at preventinggrace.com. She's got a sub stack as well called Demotivations with Anne. And welcome back. How are you feeling? I'm feeling actually great. So <laughs> that's a relief. I don't have to lie or anything. <laughs> Good. Okay. So you wrote a really interesting piece in your sub stack today. How do you feel now? And the story starts, which I'd like you to tell about you. Of course, you've been intentionally homeschooling your children for many years. They're at higher levels now. And one of your kids is involved in, in, in the Latin uh, study that is online. Talk, t- tell us the story, please, about that and feelings. Well, so, yes, I I had to buy classes this week for the next year, Uh, but I have my oldest kid is in college now, and I was talking about her her foray into real, you know, like college. She had to go there. Mm. uh, She had to navigate on her own, and um, she's living at home, but, you know, it's not like as parents we went with her to make sure she got to class (laughs) or anything crazy, although I'm hearing stories about how some parents are showing up to do that now. Their Mm. children are kind of melting down. But uh, she signed up for Latin in a regular public university, and uh, she was really excited. And then it kind of took a dark turn. She had, as part of the every single assignment to, and class period, to fill out a little form saying how she felt during the class and how she felt while she was doing the homework. And this is really interesting. And we had never heard of anything like this before. And so I hadn't, you know, read about it anywhere. Uh, I didn't really know how to help her. I just telling her of my usual way to buck up. (laughs) Oh, you have to fill out a form about how you're feeling. Uh, I don't care how you're feeling. Just fill out the form. And the get on with it exactly which she she kind of did but what was interesting about the process is that she was able to sort of sort through what it was like and discovered that every time she started she had to do latin she was not able to fully enter into the task of latin because she was always having to think about herself all the time and at the behest of somebody who was essentially a stranger to her who demanded to know about her internal state on the task of doing Latin. And I believe me, as I'm a mother of four girls, it was miserable for all of us because <laughs> even though we told her to buck up, you know, we all had to live with this activity night by night. And uh, I, I was sad. She was sad because it really did spoil the task of, of Latin for her. And, you know, she went on and did Greek uh, and kind of left that teacher behind. But um, it, it was interesting then to see that this isn't just something that happened to us. This is happening 
to young children all over uh, the country in school situations. So I was really shocked to read about it online this week. So your feelings now step alongside your learning capabilities, right? Um, you've got a little passenger as you learn. This is something new. Uh, social emotional learning uh, is a model, right? Um, do you know, understand what the point of this is? I mean, uh, other than making people like, you know, anxious? I know. I Well, I'm really looking forward to reading the book that's coming out. It, hmm. So it was an article in the Free Press about a book that's going to be released. Um, uh, Abigail Schreier, who wrote a really, really excellent book you know, a couple of years ago that yes. opened a lot of people's eyes. So I'm eager to read this uh, because I, I hadn't heard of this term. Uh, but it does seem like you know, it's it's the kind of thing that all of us being well-meaning think that we're going to make things better if we if we kind of help kids to to process really what they're dealing with. I think that sounds like what it's supposed to be because you know, sorting things out is a good thing. You know, we we definitely have learned that stuffing all your feelings inside and never examining them has not been a good deal. No. But it's interesting to see that. Maybe it's possible to go too far the other direction, like way too far, so that you actually inhibit children from learning at all. Mm -hmm. Because feelings are paramount, apparently, over all things. And you need to identify your feelings, know your feelings, because if you can't or don't or won't, then you're not a fully functioning human being. Which, to me, I'm driving into work every day, and there's billboards that I go by that are often for depression, anxiety, and addiction. And I think those are sort of the springboards of the feelings conversation that all of a sudden we're a mess because we can't get away from ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting that I think we people were real quick to jump on the, you know, know how you feel bandway. And it's interesting because we've encouraged men especially to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's probably, you know, I mean, it's a complicated thing to do to a teenage girl. But I think doing it to a teenage boy would, would be similarly terrible. Uh, and it's it's, I think, you know, it's the human effort to get something that only God can give, <laughs> you know, how we always want, we want utopia essentially. And so we're willing to, you know, we want to be happy. So we double down trying to get happiness. And in the, in the course of that, destroy any possibility of happiness. That's what this feels like. Um, this effort to make people feel their feelings fully uh, is well-meaning, but you know, it's so elusive. How could that possibly help you get through the day? Right. <laughs> and, and, and I also think that I don't trust my feelings. I mean, I, you know, I said this to you. My dad would say, feelings aren't facts. You may be feeling this one way, but that's bound up with a lot of other things that are going on. So just because you're feeling this way doesn't necessarily make it true. And, and I think that's key. Yeah, I, I mean, that's sort of been a funny thing like the facts don't care about your feelings yeah yeah and then we discovered that you know actually the facts became your feelings over the last few years like you have your the facts your feelings are the facts it doesn't matter having objective verifiable data outside of yourself isn't necessary now because who you feel like you are inside even if it changes is the most sure reality that you can have that is so cruel uh, 
And I, it's interesting. I mean, Christians should back away from that so fast because God can arrange your feelings for you according to his will, you know, out of love for you. Uh, you don't have to, you don't have to do that yourself. Um, and I, it's, it's just interesting that the attack of, that this is going all the way down to the youngest child now in our culture is really alarming to me. Mm. So then go into that a little further. People are listening here. You know, you might be talking to people who, who don't know the Bible or don't know God at all. So talk about, you know, how God is aligning our feelings. I mean, we can fall into pop culture. What are your feelings? But there is a biblical imperative here that's different than what the world's about talking about right now. Well, one thing that's really astonished me lately reading the Bible is how emotional God is and how emotional the Psalms are. Uh, if you're looking for a really emotive, you know, very full-orbed view of emotion, you really can't do better than looking at God, who had, who is full up of feelings about his people and their relationship to him. Uh, and one thing that's interesting is that that his people, God, the people of God, never have the right, have the reciprocal feelings about God. They always feel the wrong thing about God. Uh, and I think in previous generations, there was this sense that, yeah, the facts don't care about your feelings. Um, your feelings about God are are likely to be wrong. And you would want to deliver them up to God and ask him to change those to make them right to make them more in alignment with reality. And and he has the power to do that by yes. saving you, essentially. Uh, so salvation isn't this unemotional, you know, mind trip that you go through. It's where your being is realigned with reality, the way that God has arranged it. And that's a very gracious work that he accomplishes. Um, but if you say that you who you are is conflated with your feelings— then, well, I mean, you're not going to be able to be saved. <laughs> well, not to, you're not going to want God to do anything for you because you've already accepted who you are. And that's just so dismal um, and not the way that human beings have lived ever in the course of human history. Until recently. Until recently. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, we as a society, we are held hostage to and by our emotions and emboldened by the rest of society to to, to do that. At the same time, you know, God calls us to be at peace, right? Not to worry and not to fear, but to, to love him and know him. And with that, we will find the peace that we need to go through this hard and difficult life. And then there is heaven that awaits us. But it's simplifying, of course difficult, uh, undoubtedly, almost impossible. We all fall into this, but there it is. The call is on our lives. Yeah, it's been possible for people to, you know, knuckle under and accept reality and accept the work of God in their lives and suffer with um, true faith and, um, you know, maybe not indulge every little thing that comes along. But if you, if you, if your, if your elementary school teacher asks you at the beginning of the day, what's making us all sad today? I mean, that's just a terrible, uh, that's a terrible way to live. And a a teacher is supposed to help you, you know, feel happy about learning and, you know, hopefully feel happy about being a person. And 
by getting out of yourself, not doubling down on on your own thoughts right. about things. Uh, and so it's it's a, I mean, this is a good reason to homeschool, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I worked at it for so long. Yes, you did. Even yeah. though it's hard work and it's you know suffering and all kinds of things, but just bearing. My having my child only encounter this as a a college freshman was a a, a mercy, I guess, for yeah. us. But traumatizing enough, even as a college freshman. So imagine a six year old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine a six year old da- daily giving an emotional check in, mm-hmm. instead of getting to play with Play-Doh. <laughs> right, right. I had a friend who, for years, you know, this is a long time ago. He would say, you know, you're talking, and he would say, anyway, getting back to me. Which, yeah, yeah. which is where we are in this world, right? I mean, the age is social media, social media. What a lie that is. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, blah, 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 blah. It's all self-referential and we're like a dog just mm-hmm. chasing its tail. That's all. Yeah, it's it's and it's so immiserating. I love that word. Immiserating. Uh, you, if you if the more you t- time you spend thinking about yourself and your feelings, the more miserable you will be. There's like a, probably a graph that you could draw to show how it works. And yet that knowledge, that deep uh, truth has been lost on purpose. Um, Influencers who should know better have been teaching young people that the only way to be happy is to to think more completely and more fully about themselves. Mm. Uh, and um, that is just, I mean, that makes me feel like it's the apocalypse, even though I've tried to give uh, up that for Lent. It's not working. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go into those feelings, Anne. Stay away from those feelings. No, exactly. i got to <laughs> yeah. stay away from my apocalyptic feelings. <laughs> yes. Anne, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really good stuff. Anne Kennedy, she's excellent. She's the author of Nailed It, 365 Sarcastic Devotionals for Angry and Worn Out People. Also, Demotivations with Anne. It's a Substack read. It's a daily, uh, it's excellent. Check it out. Anne Kennedy, easily found on the web. I don't know how long it's been, but I would say five years, maybe a little longer. Um, we have been uh, luxuriating with the Honeycrisp apple. Now, apples are weird because, I mean, long since the days, long gone are the days, I should say, of Johnny Appleseed, right? The the character who went and seeded the United States, or at least the eastern part of the United States, with apple trees. Now, because apples are such a big deal that apple producers have created all these different, in air quotes, varieties of apples for us to enjoy. The only problem is that it becomes almost Frankensteinian. I remember years ago, remember remember the red delicious apple, right? This was like an apple from uh, my childhood. It looked beautiful. And for a long time, it snapped, and it was really a pleasing apple to eat. But it became so Frankensteinian in its aesthetic appeal, red, like the perfect sort of like poster child of what an apple should look like, red and beautiful, no delineation. They essentially 
took the soul out of the red delicious apple and it tasted bland. They, they killed it in some way. Years later, again, this is just through personal experience, the Fuji apple came in the market. Holy smokes, there's a Fuji. Give me that. And it was great. It cracked and was delicious and just juicy, uh, uh, the fine, fine apple. But again, the weirdness is producers messed with it and changed it, and it lost its sparkle. Enter in now to the Honeycrisp, like I said, a few years ago. Honeycrisp came in, and you think, man, that's a fabulous apple. Well, I'm reading in Axios, it's a website we follow, that the Honeycrisp, the days of the expensive Honeycrisp, uh, they may be over. Because what happened was in Minnesota, which is where the Honeycrisp was first produced, only in Minnesota. Can you imagine how short the growing season is in Minnesota with apples, right? It's not exactly a temperate uh, climate. Um, They produced the Honeycrisp. But then later on, uh, growers responded by rushing to plant trees over the past two decades in different states, Washington, New York, Michigan, which grows a lot of them. So now they say that the supply of Honeycrisp fruit has finally caught up with the demand, at least for this year. Uh, There's a winter 71% surplus, a lot of Honeycrisp on the market, which, of course, supply and demand, right? There's a lot. The price goes down. But I wonder... Is that going to alter, right? Next year, we're going to go, Honeycrisp, what's the next apple on the horizon? It's wild, isn't it? You know, what we think is healthy, of course, produced in the minds of farmers and bio, whatever those people do that get the food to our tables and in our mouths. It's it's a weird world. Anyway, hope you enjoy your apple a day because it really does Keep the doctor away. Hey, uh, speaking of um, keeping the doctor away, well, there might be some doctors. There's some shows coming into uh, Pittsburgh that you should be aware of. Natalie Grant, uh, March 22nd. At the uh, all these, these three shows, which I love, the Carnegie Music Hall of Homestead. Uh, Natalie Grant and Bernie Herms um, at Carnegie Music Hall. Now, Jeremy Camp. Jeremy, was Jeremy with us last week, I think, on the air? Love Jeremy Camp. So Natalie Grant is March 22nd. Jeremy Camp is April 4th. And then Amy Grant, May 14th, coming into uh, Carnegie Music Hall. All those tickets on sale right now at wordfm.com. Also, uh, Brandon Lake, you know Brandon Lake? The Tear Off the Roof Tour coming into Pittsburgh. He's at the Peterson Event Center. Holy smokes, that's May 3rd. That's a big venue. That's a lot of, lot of seats to fill. Again, wordfm.com. You can uh, win free tickets with Kenny as well um, as the weekend goes on, too. So. It's good. It's good to see. You know, it kind of feels as though post-pandemic, people are back in droves now. I mean, maybe I maybe I should just even stop using that phrase, post-pandemic, right? Because it feels like anytime you bring it up, sorry, I'll just I'll stop right now. I won't even mention it again. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Oh, Who else was coming into town? Uh, Kath was talking about um, the event, uh, the woman's event. And, uh, oh, oh uh, uh, Lisa Turkhurst. Yeah, that's cool. Lisa Turkers, Lex in the race, <laughs> shaking your head at me like, what, I'm like, I'm delving into some weird territory. It's here. okay, buddy. Take your time. <laughs> <laughs> She's coming into Pittsburgh. All right. Wordfm.com.
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. It's the Wednesday edition of The Ride Home, 5 o'clock hour. Happy that you're with us. Hope that uh, you're on your ride home and you're feeling good. The job well done, right? You made it through an, another day. Maybe not. You fl- you flourished through another day. You made it through, it kind of feels like, you know, you, you just kind of like just kind of mumbled through. I just kind of, I made it through. Maybe you flourish. We should flourish our way home and feel better about ourselves. Um, uh, do you go through this? I, of course, I think most people do. I go through periods of waking up at 3 a.m. It's kind of one of these things, right? You just wake up. <clears throat> I was talking to one of my sisters about it, and she was like, well, maybe you should do the breathing thing. And I'm like, okay, what's the breathing thing? She's like, well, you concentrate breathing in through your nose and then breathing out through your mouth. And so as you concentrate, then you forget about things and you fall asleep. <laughs> I tried that. It was a mess. I could not do it. No, I, no. At 3 a.m., I'm thinking I'm an abject failure because I'm breathing improperly. <laughs> Sometimes breathing's hard. <laughs> At 3 a.m., everything seems hard. I'm telling you. Anyway, so I've started to, of basics, I mean, think about our friend Frederica Matthews Green. She does the Jesus Prayer, uh, which I love. But then, then how about, I mean, when you go back to the early prayers that you learned, I mean, we were, as kids, we were taught to memorize the Apostles' Creed, right? I think it maybe, was that third grade, maybe? It might have been second or third grade. So there it is, 3 o'clock in the morning. Here's me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I mean, I've known that for many decades, forever. And I wonder, you know, that's taught today. I, I bet I was. I bet I was in third grade. At the most, maybe fourth. But I'm thinking younger than, as a, maybe even second grade, for all I know. And so three o'clock in the morning, that's what I'm thinking about now. Anyway. Not such a bad thing. Okay, hey, we started this thing um, a, a while ago, our five at five. It's a sort of an informal, we visit it a couple of times a week, maybe, if we remember to do it. But uh, because Cass's not here, uh, Lex, you will be the recipient of the five at five. Cue the music. Ah, uh, there it is. Is that salsa? Tang- I think so. Tango, maybe? Some jazz. I like it. Okay, so... Sec- uh, Lex, because there is this huge gulf in our ages. Yes. I give you the the vintage five at five. Okay. Okay. So you have a pen in hand? Yes, I do. Okay. In no particular order, cassette tape, rotary phone, vinyl record on a turntable, the typewriter, a transistor radio. Now, all I'm asking you to do is to just put those in order, one to five for you, whatever they mean to you or not. Can you reread that list to me real quick? 
the cassette tape, the rotary phone, a vinyl record on a turntable, a typewriter, the transistor radio. Okay, mm-hmm. I see, I see. Okay. Well, I think the transistor radio actually has to be... Number five. Number five. Really? Yeah. You never have one? No, I never... Uh, I don't want to say a lot of these I didn't have, because I think... I think the transistor radio is the only one I didn't have really? growing up, because my uh, mother is around your age. Okay. Um, and so I'm very used to a lot of old stuff being but She house. had it, right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, but I can't overstate the importance of the transistor radio. Oh, It revolutionized, right? Mm-hmm. Take the radio to the beach, or holy smokes, I got a radio out here in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. It's a big deal. But Absolutely. for you, never any connection. Yeah, not really. All right. Um, I think number four mm-hmm. is going to be the rotary phone. Mm. Uh, my grandma had one in her home, more as decoration than anything. Mm-hmm. There was that era. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's a very interesting. I want to know the uh, the background of it, essentially, of like why it's why it was built that way, why pressing buttons was not the thing. Mm. What color is it? <laughs> uh, black. I think okay, it's a basic black. Right? Mm-hmm. We have a red wall phone in our kitchen. Wow, oh, fancy. Wow. Yeah, it worked for a little bit, but now it doesn't. Yeah. Mm. Okay, rotary phone. Yeah, mm. rotary, fo- rotary phone is number four. Mm. I would say the cassette tape mm. is number three. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I, when driving in old older cars, cassette tapes were like the main thing. Yeah. Sometimes they had that in CD players, but um, I think, yeah, the cassette tape is number three, because mm. I remember having a bunch of them, and we did have a radio in our garage that played, it was a stereo, Um it played CDs and it also played cassette tapes, and we had a bunch of cassette tapes growing up, so nice. we used those a lot. So that's number three. Mm-hmm. Number two, I think, is the typewriter. I think they're super interesting, and I want one so bad. Never had one. I'm not, no, I've never had one, but I want one. A S D F G H J K L semi, right? That's your home keys. Yeah. Right? We took typing class in mm-hmm. high school, right? Yeah, I took typing classes in high school too, but yes. they were on a keyboard. Right. <laughs> Okay, so the typewriter, you would have to have a ribbon, right? All yeah. the accoutrement. can't be that expensive to get a vintage typewriter, can it? It might be. Right? It's uh, just old uh, technology, yeah, so I yeah. assume it's you know hard to get. But mm. number one, it has to be, I think, the uh, vinyl record on a turntable. Yeah. I bought best. a... I've been... I have a ton of old vinyls from just uh, people that my mom took care of mm-hmm. that are no longer with us Take anymore. These. And they were like, well... All of these, I have like old Glenn Miller band oh, vinyls sure. and stuff, yeah. um, and of course, vinyls are a new thing here. Like they've made a resurgence of some sort. Yeah. Um, but Weirdly. I have I I got like a really cheap turntable, and I found out that it can really destroy some old records. Right. So I have to, I have to get a really expensive one, and I got to save up for that. Mm, okay. Yeah. Tread lightly on that, right? Because there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, some of the uh, newer ones. That are a lot cheaper, uh, press down on the vinyl too hard, and it will actually ruin the vinyl. I see. So, got you got to splurge a little bit on those, I but guess. has to be because I have so many old records that I just I keep around that I really like to listen to, but I can't listen to them right now. Mm-hmm. So, to 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 finish up the list, number five, uh, transistor radio. Yep. Number four, the cassette ta- or the rotary phone, rather. Uh, number three, the cassette tape. Number two, the typewriter. And number one, final record Very on the nice. turntable. Excellent. It's five at five, the vintage edition from Lexi. We'll take a, a quick break and come back. 
We're going to talk about glory next. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home. 101.5 Word FM, WORD. I don't know about you, but I do not look forward to suffering. But there it is. I mean, that's just who we are as God's creation. We were, in many ways, made to suffer. Dr. Kurt Thompson is back with us. He is a psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia. He's the author of several excellent books, The Soul of Shame, The Soul of Dignity. His latest is wonderful, called The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. And we've been going every month, chapter to chapter, through The Deepest Place. And Kurt, welcome back. John, thanks so much. Sorry that Kathy's not here today, but it's great to be able to talk with you. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, Kathy is uh, suffering right now with a bad back. So uh, we pray that... Uh, oh, goodness. ...suffer through that. <clears throat> but let's you and I engage yeah. in, uh, yeah. in in something... Uh, a little brighter and lighter in some ways. Well, maybe not lighter, but deeper. Uh, In chapter four, you tell the story of a young woman. Chapter four is glory. And you start off by engaging in a very deep, sad story. Tell us this, please. Yeah. Yeah. So Cheney was a young woman who came to see me in her late thirties. And her story turned out to be one in which she uh, grew up uh, in a, a developing country in which her parents worked for an NGO, a nonprofit there in, in the developing country, but sent their kids away to a boarding school. And so Jenny went to a boarding school and she went when she was very, very young and was rather summarily mistreated by a group of girls who were in the school for a number of years mm-hmm. while she was there. And she took refuge in an older boy whom she thought was her protector. Uh, then in that relationship, she became pregnant and her parents not really being able to tolerate this, not being able to manage this from afar because this was in a different country where she went to school. Uh, they had the pregnancy terminated mm. through an abortion um And, of course, this created all kinds of turmoil for her. But at the time, she's just trying to survive. And so she came home. She went to college. While in college, she had an encounter with Jesus um, and continued to live her life. But, you know, her family of origin still had a number of challenges. And by the time that she got to me, what was happening was uh, between her own now new pregnancy and her unfinished business from her family, all the wheels started to come off again because there was a lot of unfinished business from the trauma that she had experienced. And of course, when she came into my office, there would have been no sense um, that the notion of glory, that is our chapter's topic, that the notion of glory has anything to do with suffering. And suffering was what Cheney was deeply in the middle of. She couldn't escape it. She couldn't escape the depression that she was in. She had a hard time, (coughs) pardon me, being able to escape the rage that she felt toward her parents and functioning. It was was becoming increasingly difficult for her. And so we began to introduce her to this notion of glory, but not directly in the same way that we see that St. Paul, when he writes the fifth chapter of Romans, before he gets to suffering, 
he first passes this notion of glory just before we get to the central topic of the book, that of suffering. We really see Paul beginning to help his readers pay attention to what's really important to precede suffering, this notion, but we hope in the glory of God. And not only that, we glory while we suffer. Hmm. And, you know, that struck me and thought, like, my goodness, um, <coughs> pardon me, anytime someone talks to me about suffering, you know, glory is not a word that is within a country mile of that No, no, right. What does the word, no, what does the word glory have to do with Cheney's suffering, the fact that she had all this unfinished business with her parents who were not really in any, in, they were of, of interested not uh, at all in kind of apologizing for their behavior or in meeting her halfway. That was so challenging. And what is she then to do with the, you know, decades long now guilt that she felt about the abortion? But when we really start to understand glory for, from the perspective that we're talking about here, we begin to get a sense of how glory is an important element that begins to shape our understanding and experience of suffering. Hmm. That's the way that we, you know, when we, when we, th yeah, when we think about glory in the scriptures there, as it turns out, the scriptures talk about God's glory in a number of different ways. One of the, you know, we think about God's beauty, God's power, God's grandeur, God's magnificence, all those things that make complete sense and are part of, and are so part of what we mean by glory. But there is a particular element of glory that we read about in particular in John's gospel. When you read in the first chapter that when the, when the writer uh, states, we beheld the glory of God, that of the Son of the Father. Hmm. This notion that glory isn't just about God's brightness or God's power, but glory is to be understood in terms of the unbelievable love that the Father pours out toward the Son and that the Son pours out toward the Father. Glory in its essence is this notion that we are the object of God's immovable, unshakable, utter delight. Mm. Now, of course, this is not something that Cheney was easily accessing or you know, being able to have some sense of this. Right. But, you know, C.S. Lewis has a, a well-known sermon by the title, The Weight of Glory, and he talks about the second uh, the, the fourth chapter of Second Corinthians, in which Paul writes about this, that we have a weight of glory that is awaiting us. And Lewis writes this really beautiful uh, little anecdotal story. And he um, he mentions that uh, for anybody who owns a dog, and our, of, of our listeners, there may be many who own dogs. And if our dogs are healthy, when we come home at night, many of us have the experience of our dog coming up to us because our dog is excited to see us. And if we have dogs that we love, we also are delighted to see our dog yes. and our dog just can't get enough of our delight in our dog. <laughs> and Lewis points out, Lewis points out that for a dog, there is no greater joy. There is no greater glory for the dog than for the dog to know its master's delight in it. Yeah. 
And this, right, I know. You're like, um, yeah, I've seen this picture. Every you come day. in and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. They, and, they, and like, and they're, they, they, like, you just can't, you can't put a price tag on it. You nope. can't measure it. It is, it, it is just infinite in its intensity it. and its love. The dog loves taking in the delight of her or his owner. Yes, fabulous. And what Lewis is pointing out is this, is that this is what it is like for us in heaven. Hmm. That God wants us, if you imagine we're the dog, and God shows up, and we are excited to see God, but what we are mostly excited about is God's excitement at seeing us. Yeah. That's a beautiful. This is the glory of the Son, who's lavished love by the Father, and who returns this. Hmm. This is this deep, intense glory that then for Cheney became much more embodied and realized as she spent time in these confessional, in the confessional community that she became a, became part of, that we've talked about on our show before. Yes. This notion that when we have a community of people for whom when we show up, they are the ones who are saying to us, we can't believe that you're here. We are so happy that you're here. Like the master who comes home and greets his dog. Yeah. And it is this, it is this practice of being in community relationships in which people, even in the middle of our darkest moment, make it possible for us to have the sense that we are their delight. And it is that delight that echoes and that mirrors and that is emblematic of the glory that Paul is writing about here, such that if this is the glory that I am taking in on a regular basis, this begins to shape my suffering. This begins to speak to my suffering. And so suffering is not a thing that I can experience in isolation and be okay with. What I'm going to need is to have a community who very much like that dog is going to be able to give me and I become part of the community that can give its other members that glory that enables me to experience a difference in my suffering because of it. That's so good. Dr. Kurt Thompson is with us. We're talking about Chapter 4, Glory, in his latest work called The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. So, Kurt, there's Cheney in the midst of her despair and suffering, but because of this intentional community— this confessional community, mm-hmm. what what was it? I mean, is there a linchpin? I mean, people are listening right now, and they're going, give me that. Mm-hmm. I need that. What is right. that linchpin to have that community to wipe away or at least to minimize the suffering to show us the glory? Right. The first thing is, uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a it is an action that we can take today if we are willing to risk it. Mm. And the action is, number number one, it is our willingness to tell our story. For Cheney, she was terribly, initially when she came to see me, there was a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment when she was talking to me about her story. Imagine her now walking into a room with seven other strangers who are not therapists, and she's now going to share that story there. That took a lot of work, but there would be moments when she would look around the room and each one of those people, in fact, I have memory of others asking her, Cheney, look at me. Look at me. I'm so glad to be here in the room with you. After she had just shared one of the more brutal parts of her story. What this does is that when I see someone 
being kind to me, when I hear their, the kindness in their voice, when I see the sightline, when I see the face, the facial expression that is kind to me at the same time that I've just shared my deepest pain, that actually in a very deeply embodied way begins to change my experience of the story that I just told because now I am not alone with it because someone else has been with me in this. And then the next thing that we did with her, when we, we would pause these experiences and, and ask, say, what just happened between you and Larissa? What just happened? And she would describe how Larissa's words, her voice, her body posture, or other multiple people in the group have just given her the felt sense of comfort and confidence. And then we tell her, we want you to go home tonight and we want you to replay this. We want you to write about this. We want you to reimagine this two to three times a day, the last three minutes of it, that have happened here. We want you to practice this three times a day for the next seven days Then you come back next week and tell us what has happened. And as she does, she becomes a living, breathing testimony to what the work of the body of Jesus is actually intended to do. We don't, we, we are not part of the transformation of each other's lives simply by showing up on church on Sundays, sitting in pews and going home. We are transformed by each other's presence by virtue of being deeply embedded in each other's lives in these ways, such that the work of the Holy Spirit can take that presence and transform our suffering into glory. I'm into that. That's excellent. That's really, that's the word of the day here. I mean, glory, do we not all want that, desire that, because all of us are carrying the suffering of our own crosses. Kurt, always a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. And might as well. Yes, the deepest place, suffering in the formation of hope, Dr. Kurt Thompson. Like you, uh, I have family members and friends who are in their 70s and their 80s. Remember, a few years back, I was talking to my sister about one of my friends, and she <laughs> she said to me, oh, Johnny, uh, you must be old if one of your friends is 80. Now, there's something to be said about that, right? I mean, everyone's, we're kind of getting up there. But I, I think about age because you, I saw a story here, and you see these stories and you think, really? Really? Uh, listen to this. Following the death of a hundred one hundred and sixteen year old Edith Edie Cesarelli in Northern California, a one hundred and fourteen year old woman in Texas has become the oldest living American. Hundred and fourteen years old, Houston resident Elizabeth Francis, now the country's oldest documented living person. At 114 years, seven months, and two days as of February the 28th. I mean, holy smokes. Uh, she's what? She's number five, apparently, um, as far as oldest people. The oldest person alive right now is 116, uh, Maria Moyera. She's Spanish. What the heck? Can you imagine? I mean, I'm in my 60s. I can't imagine six. To live four or five more decades? So this woman, um, Elizabeth Francis, she was born in Louisiana July 25th of 1909. 1909. Look what's happened since 1909. World War One, the stock market crashes, World War II, Cold War, Man on Moon, 
the digital age, all these different things. I mean, so after her mother died uh, in 1920, uh, this poor woman, uh, Edie, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Francis, uh, her and her five siblings, they were broken up and they were sent to different homes. And she was, uh, Edie was sent to Houston where she was raised by her aunt. She has one daughter who's 94, who she shares a home with in Houston. Three grandkids, five great-grandchildren, and uh, 12 great-great-grandchildren. She moved in with her daughter in 1999. (laughs) Apparently, longevity runs in her family. Her sister uh, lived to the age of 106 before passing away in 2011. Frances and her sister are among the pair of siblings with the oldest combined age in world history. That's wild, isn't it? People are amazing. But what you wonder, you know... People whose longevity, you know, is in their families. What is that? I mean, it's just a matter of just good genes. Some people attribute, of course, their diet or exercise or their community, their church community, all those different things that generate longevity. Of course, and if you talk to people, of, you know, older, they're like, some people, you know, they're, they're waiting to die, which it, I, you get, right? Painful as it is. Where you're in, you know, all of your friends are gone, your, your, your loved ones, and you are alone now. And so, you know, a man or woman out of time, right? That can imagine growing up in 1909 and how the world is science fiction to you. Everything that comes your way is like, this is unimaginable to me. I have no idea what, what is happening here. So to be a person out of time. Beautiful at at the same time horrible as well. If you're a mom or a dad, how do you navigate for your kids the morass of what we're involved right now with the media, with the phones in front of us, our, our, our smartphones and the web and TikTok and Instagram and X and all the all the different things that come our way. I mean, is that even a realistic possibility for you as an adult, man or woman, and then for the little kids that you're in charge of, right? That that you love and, and you want to nurture and protect. How does it even work? Adam Holtz is with us. Adam is a director of Plugged In, Focus on the Family's Entertainment and Technology Review website. He's got a brand new workout uh, coming up March 5th, Becoming a Screen-Savvy Family, How to Navigate a Media-Saturated World and Why We Should. Adam, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, our pleasure. I mean, seriously, Adam, is it even possible to, to navigate through this? Well, I think it is possible, and I think that it's easy to have what I would probably describe as all-or-nothing thinking, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and sure. Sometimes in man world, I am given to all-or-nothing thinking <laughs> in that I, I see a problem, and I want to solve it in one cell swoop. You know, I get out the biggest metaphorical axe I can find, and I try to chop the tree down with one swipe. And, you know, if you're a dad, you know, I think sometimes we have moments where we become really sensitized to the reality of the issues our kids are facing this is a problem that resists all-or-nothing thinking, and it's probably not going to be solved with one moment of intentionality. And on the flip side, uh, my kids are 13, 15, and 17, okay. so I'm right in the middle of this. Yep. 
um, it's easy to feel so overwhelmed that you just want to give up. Yeah, right? but at the same time, right? And I can understand. Okay, my, I have a, my kids are adults now, so we, we've gone through this to some smaller degree. But I've got nieces and nephews, you know, who are 10, 11, 12. And like a lot of kids, they're still at that sweet, innocent thing. And so yeah. I think, here we go, man. I'm going to open up Pandora's box, and it's going to crush their lives. Yeah. Well, I think that what we would advocate is the middle path between the two extremes is you do want to be intentional. You want to set boundaries, but we want to be working on relationship in such a way that we have the ongoing opportunity to influence how our kids are interacting with screens. And, you know, when they're younger and into their early teen years, that that has to do with setting boundaries, right? When, where, how much, you know, what are you engaging with? And as they get older, giving them more freedom to make those decisions, but staying connected and engaged with them in such a way that we have some idea of of what they're doing. And more importantly, that we have a conversation that's ongoing so that we can talk about, hey, you know, what are you engaging with? What do you see? How does that compare to what we believe um, as Christians. And, uh, you know, maybe that may sound a little bit Pollyannish, but I do think that it's possible to have significant influence even in our older kids' lives and to move toward that goal of what does our faith have to do with the way we interact with our screens, with entertainment, with social media, with all of that. Uh, And so I think that's the bigger picture goal. And the goal is not perfection because we're probably not going to hit that goal. But the goal is that, that, that ongoing engagement and intentionality with relationship so that, you know, the communication lines stay open. Right. I mean, I, and I get that. And I want that. Of course, all, all parents really desire that with their kids, right? Now, a, a good friend of mine, you know, five or six years ago, she gave her kid a smartphone. I think he was maybe 13 or 14, right? That's just the, yep. it's just the break age or something for a lot of parents. But the kid right. said to her at one point, Mom... I saw porn, and now I can't unsee it. And so, yeah. I mean, it, because it's everywhere, Adam, I mean, it's like right. as, as, as deep a relationship you may have with your kid, all of a sudden you've just poisoned your kid with these images. Right. Well, and I think that because of our culture's take on sexuality these days, part and parcel of this conversation is talking about sex, helping our kids understand sex, and understanding its purpose and place, And if you have a child that is exposed to pornography and it becomes, you know, a deep problem, then we're talking about bringing in more resources. We're talking about counseling. We're talking about, you know, maybe a pastor or somebody at your church staff who gets engaged. So, uh, again, I'm not trying to to minimize those threats. Those are possibilities. Um, and, and we have dealt with that in my family. Um, you know, somebody sending an image, I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about why this is a problematic thing. My son had somebody who unsolicited sent him an image. It was on our home computer in the living room and my daughters found it. They said, dad, you got to see this. And so, um, we were able to have that conversation. So I think, Certainly, pornography is an ever-present threat, uh, and we have to understand our kids, right? We've yeah. got to know the extent to which this is a temptation that they may be likely to succumb to. But again, that even that is in a bigger ongoing conversation 
about sexuality because our culture, John, says sexuality is the most important thing, <laughs> and it's where we find our our sense of identity and fulfillment. And Scripture says it's really important, but it's not everything and it's not nothing. And so we've got to be in that ongoing conversation about that particular topic. That's good. Talking with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family. He's director of Plugged In at Focus. He's got a brand new work, Becoming a Screen-Savvy Family, How to Navigate a Media-Saturated World and Why We Should. It drops March 5th. So, um, Adam, talk to us about TikTok. I mean, um, yeah. as porn is for boys, so is TikTok for for young girls, body image and all that. That, um, uh, yep. How do you navigate through that morass? Well, again, it's the same set of principles, and I think it's not just TikTok. What we're really dealing with issue-wise is the issue of short-form video, that mm-hmm. we're living in a, in a place where whether it's TikTok, whether it's Snapchat, whether it's Facebook, kids aren't on Facebook, uh, or Instagram, we're living in this world where these short videos are the lingua franca of the day. Right. What do they call it? Popcorn brain. Exactly. And you get popcorn brain. That's exactly right. Our brains become so addicted to this need for constant stimulation that even before we talk about the content, we've got to talk about what happens when we just have this diet of constant short form videos. And frankly, there's a lot of research that says that adults' consumption of these things isn't much different than kids. So uh, before we go very much further, Adults, parents, we've got to get our house in order first before we can help our kids begin to get their house in order. Um, and so we've got the issue there of that the addictive nature of the medium is I just want this constant hit. And then, you know, the next layer down is the actual content that our kids are dealing with because there are all kinds of things. And theoretically, most of these social media platforms would prohibit outright you know, pornography, but man, you can get pretty close. And as you said, there's a lot of, you know, pro anorexia and eating disorder stuff that seems to glorify horrible and destructive things. And so, again, we have to be aware of what our kids' interests are. And I think that in general, the longer you can delay their entrance to having a smartphone and then to having social media, the better, right? Because it just gives time for them to continue to mature and to grow before, you know, that is just thrust at them constantly. And I think at the point at which we do cross that Rubicon as a family, a really basic boundary is we're not going to have smartphones in our bedrooms with the doors shut. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're looking at porn. But we don't know what they're looking at. We don't know what the influences are. Um, and so even that really basic boundary, John, is a great starting point to say, okay, you know, this is technology that exists, but here are going to be some of the boundaries that we're going to put on it. That's really good. Uh, becoming a screen-savvy family. Yeah, this is good. Um, Adam Holtz is with us from Plugged In and Focus on the Family. Okay, Adam, so your kids are still young enough. Um, I remember fondly uh, movie night. Of course, you know, I'm going back 20 years, but that was, you know, sort of like the high point of our week. Hey, it's movie night. Are you guys still doing this? Is that still a thing? It can be. I mean, I think that one of the things that we talk about is just intentionality. And when we talk about being a screen-savvy family, what that requires of us as parents is how do we engage intentionally with entertainment and media as opposed to passively, yeah. right? So we're living in a time where the people creating what we affectionately call as content, which is everything, 
their goal is to get you to engage for as much time as you will possibly give them. And they would rather have you be passively consuming, which is to say, you didn't really make a decision to do it. You just sort of, you have the habit, you know, you pick up your phone, you scroll, you watch a video, a video turns into 45 minutes of videos. That is unhealthy. But saying, hey, there's a great movie out. We think it could be entertaining. We think there are issues that maybe we can talk about. I think engaging with entertainment really intentionally is something that we can model with our kids. And so that could be a movie night. That could be a, a TV show. Um, and it's like, hey, we're going to enjoy this together. It's not that everything on screens is bad. It's that we want to make a decision to do that in an active way intentionally as opposed to just passively drifting into it because, well, that's the only thing we know how to do anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's the hole we've all fallen into, and that's how we're going to continue, yeah. right? Yeah, that's good. Yep. Uh, hey, uh, before you leave us, uh, Adam, you know, my wife and I, um, as opposed to streaming, you know, um, a series, we're not going to watch you. Yeah. Although, you know, we do stream occasionally if something comes our way. But uh, we both preferred the movies. So much so yeah. that, you know, we're going to the movies, I mean, sometimes once a week. So we're, we're seeing things. That's great. Now, you bring up, you know, I bring up a uh, <laughs> here on the air, and I can hear people's eyes rolling. Oh, the Oscars are coming. And people go, oh, the Oscars. Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know yep. what? It's weird. It's funny. I mean, I, the politics aside, all the crazy California stuff, I still love it because I, I like movies. So uh, yeah. are, you, are you watching movies? Are you going to movies? Is there anything out there that you kind of go, hey, I mean, you know, there's a lot of good movies out right now. Uh, you know, what's a recommendation or two? You know what? We have uh, the Oscars are coming out and there are nine movies that are nominated for Best Picture. And um, you can find reviews of all of those at PluggedIn.com. And for people who aren't familiar with PluggedIn.com, um, we review movies from a content perspective. So we will tell you exactly what you can expect to find yeah. uh, in a given movie so that you're not surprised, you know, in a way that that leaves you wishing, oh, man, what the heck was I that? Wish we, what the heck was that? I wish we hadn't seen that. Yeah, and, right. you know, um, I saw last year when it came out, I saw Barbie. And oh, yeah. I personally kind of hated it. Um, <laughs> and, and what I hated I was I felt like it was really saying some important things about women and women's relationship with men kind of at the expense of men. Um, my wife saw it separately from me, and she loved it. Uh-huh. And we had a very robust conversation about it. And so I think it's an interesting film. Um, even if it may make you crazy angry, I think it's a great conversation starter. So of everything that's nominated, weirdly enough, I think that is one that still might be worth considering. Um, and if you're coming from a conservative point of view, know that it's, uh, you know, it doesn't have anything good to say about the patriarchy. <laughs> that sure it, doesn't, no. Called. Um, but I think that it's something that, uh, of everything that is nominated, it might be the most accessible, and it has probably about the least amount of content. And, of course, we review new movies coming out every week. Uh, Dune Part 2 comes out this week. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very violent. Um, having said that, uh, it was one of the most visually spectacular movies I have seen in years. Fabulous. And um, if you're a sci-fi fan, and, and I wouldn't take young kids to it, but I think, you know, for teens in their middle years on up, it really asks some interesting questions about religion and the role of religion and faith in society. And um, another movie that's a great conversation starter, and that's, you know, the word that we use. Yep. Have a conversation. Don't just go sit and watch it. Go out and get a piece of pie or dessert or coffee or something afterwards 
and talk about it. You know, what was the message? What resonated with you? What did you identify with? What did you hate? You know, because those are questions that will lead us into a deeper understanding of the people that we're close to. Excellent. I mean, yep, that's the notion of pop culture, the best of pop culture. Adam, uh, thanks for coming by. I really appreciate uh, hearing from you. Thanks, John. Our pleasure. Adam Holes, he is uh, from Plugged In at Focus on the Family, the director of Plugged In, a brand new work, Becoming a Screen Savvy Family. All right, so we're just talking uh, screens and movies and whatnot um, with our friend from Focus there. Uh, Went to the movies last night. (laughs) Um, Our favorite theater in the city is the Manor Theater, which is on Murray Avenue in Squirrel Hill. And it's kind of like a throwback, although I remember, you know, old enough to remember when it was just one screen. Now I think there's one, too. There might be like five screens of varying sizes. Believe me, all of them are much larger than your TV at home. I guarantee you that. But we saw a movie last night called The Taste of Things. Um, phew, man. Julia Binoche. And, I mean, if you like food, and of course, raise your hand, who, who, who among us does not love food, this is an incredibly beautiful film. I loved it so much. It is deep and interesting and romantic uh, it's a little historical piece as well. So uh, I would recommend it. If you're a movie person and you're thinking, what's out there? So, uh, wholeheartedly, I would recommend The Taste of Things. I'm, again, the, the, pre- the preface is, because it's me talking, it's not for kids, but there's, it's nothing that's going to go, what the heck, what, what did he tell me to go see this for? But seriously, if you're out and about this evening and thinking, I want to watch something, The Taste of Things... Hey, thanks for being with us. As always, we leave the air, and the podcast is up and running where you can find us. And uh, always appreciate your time and your presence. And if you want to talk, you know where to find us. Have a great night. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.